remember the gentleman who was the first director of communications for UNEP, United Nations Environment Program. I know him personally. When his best friend, Marie Strong, passed away, Marie Strong was the one who gave us the Rio Earth Summit back in 1992. I called him up and I said, hey, uh, you know, condolences on, on the loss of, of Mr. Strong because they were best friends. And so this gentleman just kind of unpacked what it was like in those early days when the environmental movement was just starting to gain shape as a political system. He, he said to me, he said, and it was almost a rhetorical question because I didn't have the answer. He said, to the effect of, do you want to know why there's a man in the center of UNEP's logo? And he said, it's because in order for us to change the world, we must first change man. We must first change man. Genesis chapter three can be said this way. The fall can be said this way. And think about it in terms of transhumanism and everything else that we've just described. When you transgress God, you transform. That's what this boils down to. By transgressing God's laws, by transgressing God, you now become as God. You now transform. You have now just challenged Yahweh and you've walked away from that challenge with this claim. But if you want to transform, transgress. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop that's just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. Well, Carl, we're excited, man. We would love to talk about Game of Gods. I think this is a good time as any in this last month of all the things that are happening, you know, even the last three years, honestly, right? I know. We would love just to to take that where you'd like to go with it. We'd love for you to break down your thoughts on what's happening. I know you talk a lot about the reshaping of Western civilization and how that relates to eschatology and, and also to what we're going to experience, right? So the removal of the of really our Christian values in the West. And and then, you know, and then we're tracking with you. We, we've talked a bit to this point about, Nate, the idea of this new religion coming about, right? Which is the return to the, the old gods, if you, if you will. So we would love you to just to, to unpack your brain. Uh, I know you've done a ton of research on this, and they just drop this no- drop knowledge on us. We're, we're just super excited. So, well, no, I mean, gentlemen, this is a pleasure to be with you. Um, I think one of the things that we need to recognize, and, and we do it. I mean, you've just actually, Luke, you just mentioned this a couple of moments ago, uh, is that we are entering a phase with with a new religion. And I teach a course on secular trends. It's a modular course, a 20-hour course over the space of one week. I do it, do it at a Bible college in southwest Saskatchewan, a little college called Miller, Miller Bible College. And uh, I tell my class up front, and the, and, the, and the course is entitled Secular Trends, and I tell my class right up front, look, 
If you want to know what the secular trend is, it's phasing to spirituality. Mm. It's not hardcore atheism. It's not humanistic secularism. Uh, you know, the, the, the boogeyman of the, of the 60s and 70s. And then, and then of course, we had the, the rise of, of intellectual atheism that really kind of started galloping forward back 15, 20 years ago. And it still has massive inroads, especially within the realm of, of universities and, and popular culture. But really, even the, the atheistic world, is, is there is talk of, well, what does spirituality look like? Because secularism, specifically secularism, and I think that, that Jacques Ellul, the uh, French philosopher and, and theologian, was absolutely correct that secularism is just the intermediary period, that pause between one dominant religious worldview being phased out and a new one entering the picture. Mm. And what's ironic with this is it's not a new one at all. It's an mm. old, old worldview. It's the worldview that uh, the, emerge, you know, the, the early church emerged out of, which was a, a pagan mindset, a Romans 1 mindset. Mm. And, and so I see this as a return to that Romans 1 position that essentially says that man and nature itself is all you know, part of, part of the, the divine, however you may define that. The concept of oneness is something that plays out heavily in my book, this idea, this notion that God, man, and nature are essentially the same. They all share a commonality. At their core, they're really, the one, they're really one. That's what the New Age teaches. Mm. That's what you see within the realm of the occult. The bottom line is that God is not transcendent. God is not separate. God can be you, and God can be the mountains, and God can be the deities of the ancient world revisited now through, through the cycles of nature. Whereas the biblical position, the biblical worldview is that God is separate, distinct, utterly unique. And I appreciate the work that Dr. Peter Jones has done uh, with Truth Exchange, his organization. He's really probably done the most to hammer this home, to recognize that the God that we serve in the Bible is fundamentally different than the creation. So instead of oneism, the way that the pagan world views views nature and and the divine, Christianity views God not as uh, views reality not as dualism but as twoism. So God being one, and then everything else being distinct and separate from Him. Everything right. else is is there's a unique qualifier between Him and creation. And honestly, gentlemen, I think that that I mean is so fundamental. It's so basic, and yet that kind of becomes the foundation we have to start to begin to work with. So I've had the opportunity, not a lot of opportunities, but I've had opportunities to, to share um, in certain pagan circles. I've gone to lots of different pagan events. And when you have those opportunities to, to have those kinds of conversations, where do you go? You, you actually go right down to what is basic. Is reality oneism or is reality twoism? Hmm. And the very fact that twoism exists and can't subsume into your oneness perspective already raises questions about the philosophical underpinnings of your position. You know, it's interesting, but that really boils down to, to what this is. Is this is the world becoming one? Well, politically, <laughs> you know, we, we see the, the thrust of history saying that's where we need to move. Are religions becoming one? Well, I mean, I go to the parliamentary world religions, and while they, they don't talk about harmonizing they talk about unifying around common causes around the common ideals of of oneism mm. uh, and, and so while we have diversity all that diversity is being channeled towards this this idea that we actually need to become one the biblical position of course is 
is quite the opposite. We're not our own saviors. Mm. Our, our creator, Jesus Christ, is our savior. Mm-hmm. So those are some of those this, distinctions, like the, the really, literally the foundational distinctions that, that I find that we need to start to wrestle with as we engage this culture, which you're right, is increasingly pagan and in really is interested in even that old paganism. Right. And that's something that we talk a lot about on our show, Carl. We get into sort of like the ancient times, the, you know, the megalithic societies, the golden age. And we use creatures to talk about these things. We talk a lot about the giants and the, and the kind of world that they, they created, right? They were trying to bring heaven on earth. They were trying to defy God in this like advanced technolo- t- technological fashion. And, you know, people still see, they still see like remnants of, of these dynasties, whether it's megalithic construction or it's actual, some of these, we think some of these creatures that people are still spot to this day, like, you know, some people still have giant encounters. Some people still run into, you know, things like Bigfoot and Moth and all these weird things. And so we try to filter all of the creature encounters and this alternate history through the biblical lens. So we get into a lot of these topics of transhumanism. And the you know we talk a lot about the golden age, mm-hmm. so and it's relation to eschatology, right? Because the idea that we that Jesus talks about, and in those days will be like the days of Noah, and we know that in the days of Noah, the the gods, little g gods, they they walked, and 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 then they were worshipped, and and then their progeny hoped to subdue subdue the earth, right? And we so I love this because we I know that we are going to go into a what you're talking about this whole paganism paganism and secular worldview is actually attempt, the attempt and we know the occult's actually trying to do this right this philosopher king idea to actively take us into a new golden age. I, I would love your thoughts on how and how that is it, they are how they and we talk about they or how this push this impetus whether it be the elites or or you know the the powers that be are pushing or trying to shape you know, how how is this? How in your mind is this, is this going to come about, right? Because we have we've we're seeing things, right? If you've had your eyes open the last you know three years, for example, I think you're starting to see some of the strategy really overtly if you look for it. Because because listen, like our Western culture was founded on Judeo Christianity, right? We we have Christian roots, even though our founding fathers may have been in some weirder weirder stuff in the United States. Here, yeah. it very much was a Christian. Judeo-Christian nation. So, how are the how in your mind? How are they going to replace this? Number one, and, and I know it's 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 a. I want to hear your thoughts on this, but it is being replaced. It kind of has to be if we're going to have this oneness. You talk about this one, eventually, right? There's there's going to be one ruler. The the, the revelation's pretty pretty specific about the Antichrist is going to unite the planet, unite unite all peoples, which is is a hard thing to understand if we're looking, if we talk about radical Muslims and Chechens and Russians and all these ethnic people groups that don't like each other. Like how, how is this, how does this happen? Right? So we love your thoughts on, on what is happening sort of in the underbelly and in the, in the undercurrent that is moving, moving us in this direction. Because I think you're right. Like, I think if you just look around, if you watch the Grammys, if, if you look at, at, at the rise of new ageism and all you see, they're giving kids books on how to cast spells. We're like crazy stuff that would seem crazy to us '80s kids, um, because that's bad. That's bad stuff, right? Like, but it's because it's nor- it's being normalized. You know, the undercurrent of this has already been alive and well for a long time, as you gentlemen know. I, I think, though, first of all, before anything really uh, can can become established deep in the culture, there already has to be conversations 
that bring some of these ideas into focus well ahead of time. So I'm going to give you an example. And this goes to your point of, of those ancient pagan ideas. I'm going to read you a section of text. I have it in my book, Game of Gods. This is the closing remarks from the United Nations Secretary General, Boutros Boutros Galli, at the Rio Earth Summit. Now, for those of you who may not know, the 1992 Rio Earth Summit was the environmental conference that put in place global governance alongside of environmental issues. So it gave us Agenda 21, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Convention on Climate Change. The whole climate change narrative has so much of its roots grounded in the 1992 Real Earth Summit. It was a really political summit, massively political. You had scores of heads of state. I can't remember how many. I think 172, if my memory serves me correct. 17,000 or so NGO participants. This is government. And yet, as the conference opened, they had a ship named Gaia, a Viking ship that sailed from Europe to Rio de Janeiro, dock in the harbor, and, and the entire event had a very pagan-esque feel to it. So at the end of the Rio summit, with all these heads of states, again, it's all politics, right? Boutros Boutros says this, I should like to conclude by saying that the spirit of Rio must create a new form of good citizenship. After loving his neighbor as the Bible required him to, post-Rio man must also love the world, including the flowers, birds, and trees, every part of that natural environment that we are constantly destroying. Over and above the moral contract with God, over and above the social contract concluded with men, we must now conclude an ethical and political contract with nature, with this earth to which we owe our very existence and to which gives us life. To the ancients, the Nile was a god to be venerated, as was the Rhine, an infinite source of European myths, or the Amazonian forest, the mother of forests. Throughout the world, nature was the abode of the divinities that gave the forest, the desert, or the mountains of personality which commanded worship and respect. The earth had a soul. To find that soul again, to give it new life, that is the essence of Rio. I'm sorry, gentlemen, that is flat out pagan mm -hmm. in a big P, capital P sense of, that, of, of the word, married into a political ideology. And so before anything can really become mainstream, there already needs to be a current that's observable within intellectual, uh, academic, elite circles. And, and that was already visible going back, golly, to, oh, the late 1960s, early 1970s, the very first Earth Day that took place happened in uh, April 22nd, 1970. And something to the effect of 20 million American citizens, mostly, mostly school children, participated in that first day, or first Earth Day. And, and they published uh, a handbook. I've got it on the shelf over there. I should have grabbed it. And the, the environmental handbook was given to school children and classes literally across Canada and the United States. And it opens up with this claim that what we need is a new religion. And we need to get rid of the Judeo-Christian religion mm. because it doesn't do anything in terms of its service to nature. Oh, my wife just, thanks, babe. <laughs> yes. And so allow me just to pop a couple of quotes out because now all of a sudden, I mean, to, to the point of the shift, this is, where does it begin? Well, you right. can lay the roots beyond this, obviously, but here is where things get really interesting because it's within our time frame, okay? I mean, I was born in 68. I was just a little shyster back then, but golly, <laughs> you know, it, it, it shaped the generation before us, right? Yeah. 
So it goes on to say, uh, no new set of basic values has been accepted in our society to displace those of Christianity. Hence, we shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence, save to serve man. It goes on to say a little bit before that, what we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the man-nature relationship. More science and more technology are not going to get us out of the present ecologic crisis until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. And it talks lots about re replacing Christianity with, with something else. And so at the end of the handbook, uh, and I'm just going to skip through the list because the list is long, long, long. But at the end of the handbook, it gives alternatives to Christianity. And these are our social good worldviews that we need to consider as we have rejected the old norms. It seems evident that there are throughout the world certain social and religious forces which have worked mm. through history towards an ecologically and culturally enlightened state of affairs. Let these be encouraged. Gnostics. Hit Marxists, Tehar Desjardins Catholics, Jewish, Taoists, biologists. I'm not sure why biologists are there, but whatever. <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, what which is, saying? It's probably written by a biologist. You know, it's like hey, maybe. Hey, 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 yeah, count yeah, me yeah. In. Job, count me in. <laughs> job security. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on. Quakers, Sufis, Tibetans, Zens, shamans, Bushmen, American Indians, and it goes on and on and on. The list is long. Yeah, I get it. The list is long. All primitive cultures, all communal and ashram movements. Since it doesn't seem practical. Even even desirable to think that direct bloody force will achieve much it'd be best to consider this a continuing revolution of consciousness which will be won not by guns but by seizing the key images myths archetypes eschatologies and ecstasies so that life won't seem worth living unless one's on the transforming energy side 1970 it's universalism and and also and also weirdly paganism and also totally. man the first thing i think about carl here is Right now, and also, well, since the 90s and since the 80s, it's this, it's this climate change push too, right? Like this idea, right. this has become a religious, almost religious calling. And how do you tie those? I mean, it's pretty easy, but I want to hear you tie those two things together because it makes sense, right? You're, you, we have this push all the time, like we got to reduce our carbon footprint and we got to go to zero and here's carbon credits. And, and, and yet you have these level-headed you know, actual actual scientists are saying, "Hey, the the Earth's climate is 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 cyclical, and you know, it doesn't matter. It snowed in Southern California last week, right? That doesn't mean anything in this." But then you have these alarmists, and they all ride their private jets to, to Davos, and yet they're telling everybody that you gotta make sure the cow farts don't happen, and you and you get an electric car. Is this an extension of what we saw with you know the? I remember doing Earth Day as a kid. Like, I remember that. I remember, I don't even know what great it was. I remember, like, wearing the shirt, and we went and planted trees or something. This was Northern California. Nate, I'm sure you did the same thing. Well, no, I went to Christian school, so we didn't get uh, You guys didn't care about the earth. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, and it is part and parcel with it. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time. I mean, I've been in this... Golly, I've been researching this since the early 90s, 90s. I've been full-time in it since 97. So I've been around the block, so to speak, uh, in terms of doing the homework on, on things like the global environmental movement, which ties directly into global governance. The same, it's the same people, same people, same organizations, same worldviews, same, same projections. I remember the gentleman who was the first director of communications for UNEP, United Nations Environment Program. I know him personally. When his best friend, Marie Strong, passed away, Marie Strong was the one who gave us the Rio Earth Summit back in 1992. 
I called uh, I called him up and I said, "Hey, uh, you know, condolences on on the loss of, of Mr. Strong, because they were best friends." And so this gentleman just kind of unpacked what it was like in those early days when the environmental movement um, was just starting to gain shape as a political as a political pressure, political uh, system. And he, uh, he he said to me, he said it was almost a rhetorical question because I didn't have the answer. He said to the effect of, "Do you want to know why there's a man in the center of UNEP's logo?" And he said, it's because in order for us to change the world, we must first change man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's, that's, that's very, very telling. But, but to the point on climate change, I mean, all right, so since the late 60s, early 70s, the, it, it, back then it was global cooling. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. And, then all, and, then, and then it became global warming and then became climate change and then it all just became wokeism. <laughs> you yeah, know, it yeah, all just, yeah, yeah. just blends together. I'm in Canada, all right? I, I don't have a choice. I have to pay my carbon credits, my carbon tax, pardon me, when I fill up my car at the gas station. It just comes off the price of the pumps, I, but I don't have a choice. And I look at this legitimately, and it's true. I'm paying a tithe and an offering to Mother Earth. Oh. That's essentially what I'm doing. Hmm. Because I know the worldview behind the climate change narrative. I understand it. I've, I've rubbed shoulders with these people. I've read yeah. the documentation. And, and just like Buchos Buchos Galli's la, you know, last part of his speech at the Rio Earth Summit, where we have the climate change agenda emerging out of the modern version of it, talking about how this is really a spiritual contract, a spiritual uh, uh, renewal back with the earth. Hello. Hello. It's... It's religious. Yeah. Essentially, it's religious. Even the political side of this has to be essentially religious. So when you consider global governance, world federalism, and I used to go to lots of world federalist meetings back in the day, and I've been to different United Nations meetings, not as press, but because I've been accredited and allowed into the door, and I won't get into all the details how you do it, but there's ways of doing mm-hmm. it. Over and over again, you hear the messaging that we're about to save the world, that what we are engaging in is the salvation of the earth. And there's a messianic complex. Mm. There is a sense that man is the one who guides our destiny. Mm. Man is the one who is in charge. We are gods now, and we, can't, and we can't be capricious. That's what Marie Strong wrote in one of his books. And so there is this, this religious component to globalization, even within the po- political side, because it's basically making a an alternative messianic claim, an alternative salvation claim through our unity. Politically, we save the world. In fact, we have our own priesthood. We have our academic political priesthood. We have our own eschatology. If we don't fix the world, it will burn. Mm. We have our holy writ, things like Agenda 21. It's, It's a religion. And not only is it religion, it's a cult because they proselytize in the hopes that they can win you over to their ideology. Right. So we have global citizenship education in the public school. You see examples of this roll through with television and, and, and movies. You can't run away from the narrative. It's in your face. I mean, it sounds like to me, really, I mean, if you look into this, none of the people at the top of this actually do anything to change their lifestyle. They don't, they don't practice what they preach, so to speak. And it feels very much like a hive mind. Is, is the global warming thing just, it's just to get everyone in line? And they're using this moral feeling that you have. Everyone's emotional system has been hijacked, is what I say in the last couple of years. They don't understand where it's coming from and how it's being used against them because they've only been taught to use their sort of cognitive 
rational brain, but they don't under, they don't have no emotional intelligence to realize your emotions are being manipulated and used against you. Wake up and 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 none of these people they're they're all flying their private jets. They do not care about the environment. We just had a massive environmental disaster in Ohio. Nobody cares. Nobody said a word about it. They do not care about the environment. And I think some Christians will get in face and say, you don't care about the environment because you're a Christian. It's like, no, I do, but it's not my God. It's not, it's not the thing that I serve. It's not above. It's a, it's a tool for us to survive here, but it's not, it's not above all that. So is it, is it, is it the hive mind is just collecting people and getting them in line. So then that ultimately there's something else coming. You, know, the, the, you raise a couple of important points. First of all, to the issue of Christianity and environmentalism. I, I grew up on a farm. I still live in a very rural area. Good for you, Carl. Good for you, Carl. That's where you, that's where you need <laughs> well, to be. Get out of the city. Yeah, I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, presently, uh, my office is in a little village of 200 people. Uh, all my neighbors are farmers. This, this is just the world yeah. we live in. And I'm sorry, when it comes to true environmentalism, we take it from the from the approach of that, especially as Christians, that we are to be stewards. Correct. Stewards mean that we have management over something. It doesn't mean that we abuse it or destroy it. We recognize the value of it because of the one who created it. Mm. And so we're the true environmentalists. However, and this is where things get interesting, after the 1970 Earth Day, the charge had been laid at the feet of Christians and at the feet of the church specifically that you have caused harm to the environment. In fact, your worldview is the reason why mm. We have environmental degradation. So, how did the Christian church respond? We didn't respond by challenging the assumptions. We didn't. Hmm. We didn't challenge the assumptions. And that's to our shame. So, we didn't challenge the assumption, and then we accepted the charge against us, and then we adopted the world's view of how to fix it. Shame on us. Hmm. Because it wasn't really ever about saving the environment. It was about bringing us in line, really more along the lines with a, with a, a spiritual ideology, a, a pagan perspective. That's really what this boils down to uh, when you see uh, how this worldview comes into play. So we should be environmentalists in the true sense of the word, not serving the creation, but serving our God who is the creator of mm -hmm. nature. But we, we've slipped into a Romans 1 mindset, even within the church. Now, now to the issue at hand about you know, do these people care? <laughs> do the global elites care uh, if, if they're flying to Davos in their private jets? No, 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 no. But even to think that they might, you're missing them the point. And I think the famous uh, humanist from the last century, Bertrand Russell in his book, The Impact of Science on Society, makes a really important point. I'm going to read a, a, a quote from you. I've got it on my screen in front of me here. Uh, this is what he says, and, and he can pull a lot of things out of this quote. I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect. But perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. If a black death could be spread throughout the world, once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. There would be nothing in this to offend the conscience of the devout or to restrain the ambitions of nationalists. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. A scientific world society cannot be stable unless there is a world government.
And to your point, his quote, really, state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. That's remarkable. That's telling. Sounds a lot. <laughs> sounds a lot like 2020 there. Like this is a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, we we, we know that, the, that there's this push to depopulate. I mean, that the, they wrote it on the Georgia Guidestones, and then they say that quiet part out loud, like just in that quote, but also some of the you know the Bill Gateses and, and et cetera of the world are on record saying that we need to decrease the pop. I mean, to me, that's, it isn't surprising. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a tenant of this new religion that we are less, <laughs> even if we're to be gods, we're less important than, <laughs> than the agenda. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and then to that point of, of don't they care? Uh, so I go to, it's, it's no secret. I go to Burning Man when I can. I've gone three times. I've been to regional and I've, I've done, done a whole bunch of Burning Man stuff in the virtual space. And one of the conversations that you end up having or even hearing among burner participants is the question of their carbon footprint. Because at Burning Man, if you know anything really much about, about the, the event, things burn. The, the effigy in the middle burns, the human effigy burns, the temple burns, lots of artwork burns. Uh, every Pretty much every night from Wednesday on, something seems to be burning, and especially Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And then the question always is asked is, is and this is, I'm talking about conversations on, on Playa at, at Burning Man. We bring generators, we are trucking stuff up out from Reno, 100 miles away, that's the closest city. A city of 80,000 appears, not only are we burning things, but we are burning fuel. We got to keep the whole place running with generators for this, for the, you know, for this duration of, of eight days for the event and even longer for the build. Well, what about that carbon footprint? What about yeah. the, you know, the environmental damage caused by that? And, and I mean, the magnitude of, of what is being used up in terms of resources is pretty staggering. It's a city of 80,000 people being constructed and then deconstructed. Yeah. But when you have these conversations and, and even overhear their own conversations, they justify it because they have a higher ideal. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are shaping the world. They're the ones who have the vision. They have the vision of the anointed, as the economist Thomas Sowell would say. Their vision of the anointed allows them to have that latitude. Mm. We, we call that hypocrisy. Yeah. You don't have to see it that way. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like maybe some of the, the pre- the golden age societies where they're sacrificing their children you know, to the gods. To It's like they are willingly giving up something of, of value or, or to, the, to the greater good, right? So I, I just can't imagine. And that's one of the arguments I have with a lot of my friends who are sort of these woke Christians who think that humans were just, we, they were just doing drugs back then. They weren't actually interacting with entities. No one, no one sacrifices their own child for, for, you know, for games. Something was going on that you don't, and we don't understand. It's that vibe to me, right? How do you get people to do something that drastic? Right. You, you, have, to, you have to give them a, a religion to participate in. And it has to be real. There has to be a component to this that draws them in to be able to make a decision like what you just described. I will sacrifice my child, or I will I will give a certain amount of my produce to the gods. I see that really not that much different in terms of 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 course it's drasticness, but it really isn't that much different. Well, maybe maybe it's not any different if I'm honest about it. Mm. 
as you consider abor- abortion as a tool for sustainable development. And I, have, I can pull quotes out from global governance environmental documents, bring that to, 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 to fruition. In fact, I think I even footnote that in my book in one, in one location, where we, we will sacrifice our economy, we will sacrifice our morals, we will sacrifice, we, we have sacrificed already pretty much everything on the altar of environmentalism. And, and and why? Because environmentalism, as I understand it, watching the environmental movement as it's it's growing, really has a religious spiritual component to it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you go back into the ancient days with Israel, the gods and goddesses that inhabited the nations around them, that they're you know, the regardless of which culture it was, whether it was the Egyptians or the Assyrians, what were those gods and goddesses? What did they reflect? What were they a part of? Always part of the natural cycle. Mm. Gods and goddesses of fertility, of, of wine, of sexuality, of victory, of war. All of them had some type of natural connection or some contact point back into natural cycles and processes. None of them stood apart the way Yahweh does. Yeah. They always had this connecting point back into the natural world. It's no real, you know, I, I can't really say it's that much different today. We, we, just, we just maybe make it more theoretical and, and academic and we call it Gaia. But again, you know, that still pulls from that same root. Carl, can, so, you know, Carl, you, you, you teach at a, at a Christian school. And so, and obviously you're a Christian and you, this is a biblical worldview that you espouse. Um, can you take do you take this all the way back to the garden? When we talk about an ancient paradigm, is, is this the same from a biblical worldview? Are we looking at a repackaging of of the initial deception that is that you need to eat of this? And if you eat of this, you can be greater, right? This this is the you can be like the gods. Is is that somewhat we're seeing in in, in this <laughs> new religion as 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 we frame it? Absolutely. We can be as God. It all boils down to Genesis three. In fact, uh, one of the one of the the blocks of time I have when I give my course is to dive deep into Genesis chapter three, because that is the that's the first lie, and all lies from then on stem back to that original fault. Mm. In fact, we can even look all the way forward to, to Thessalonians, where we see the man of sin taking the the throne and declaring that I am God. Hold on, that's just Genesis three. Yeah, that's just yeah. the repackaging of Genesis three again. We replay this over and over yeah. and over again. So, what is the fundamental problem of Genesis chapter three? And by the way, Genesis chapter three, the lie in Genesis chapter three: you can be as God, you'll be, uh, you'll be, you, you'll be wise, you'll have knowledge, you'll know good and evil, your eyes will be opened. Um, there's a half truth in there. Uh, we do now know the have the knowledge of both good and evil. It's both there. But we are now fundamentally flawed because we have decided to transgress God. And that was actually the point. So, what happens in Genesis chapter three? And this is a bit of an eye opener. It's so simple, so, so simple. But I think sometimes we have, we've overlooked it. And and I know some of the the students in my class have been blown away by this. Genesis chapter three can be said this way the fall can be said this way. And think about it in terms of transhumanism and everything else that we've just described. When you transgress God, you transform. That's what this boils down to. By transgressing God's laws, by transgressing God, you now become 
as God. You now transform. You have now just challenged Yahweh, and you've walked away from that challenge with this claim. But if you want to transform, transgress. Mm. That's the bottom line. So what is transhumanism all about? We transgress the norms, the limitations that we already have. We, we seek to become God-like. It's Genesis chapter 3. I've, I've spent a lot of time, not so much in the last few years, but before, uh, from roughly 2008 to 2015, 16, attending transhumanist meetings, both in person and in the virtual space. And again, that God-like sense is there. We are working to become as gods. We do now through science and technology. But it's the same thing. Transgress and you will transform. Um, when I go to evolutionary events like Burning Man and, and other evolutionary transformational events, the same principle applies. In fact, it's considered to be a liminal space, that container where now you can transgress the norms and the values of the culture that you have just walked out of and into this new liminal zone, this in-between space between what the world is that you know and the world that is coming and the world to be so now you transgress that mm. and now you now you live the experience of your transgression for a period of time and you walk out of it transformed mm. that's you know you look at what paul says in the new testament too and it's the it's to throw off the old things by the, trans, the transforming of your mind it, it's to to be a new creation right and, right and that actually the irony in all of this is that actually happens by surrendering your life to christ and and yet genesis 3 would say no if you transgress god you can transform into a god or or god be right. like and it, it's it, it's so fundamental and yet I feel like so many people miss this. That there, I, I love the way you put that because I haven't thought about. I've thought about this, but not in in that specific sense. And it it does make so much sense. So if we look backwards, Carl, and, and we see this, what about looking forward? So this point in time, looking forward with it with this this framework as it pertains to maybe eschatology and what you what you see as the coming of the new of the new golden age and, and what we see we know is going to happen in the end times. How, how do you see this playing out? I mean, I, I know what the goal is for this this movement, but how do you see this playing into the part uh, when we look at you know biblical eschatology and and and, and the end of days? I, I see this playing out as bookends. Really, I do believe that the end will turn around and look like the beginning, specifically in the sense that it it builds itself out of that lie, out of the out of the out of the idea that we are as gods. It has to. It has to come full circle. There has to be a, a return to this idea that we will that we will transgress and we will become God-like. We will maybe now do this not just as an individual. Let's say through, if I if I was an esoteric philosopher, through ritual and through the application of magic and the pressing of my will. But now instead, we do this collectively, and somehow, mm. somewhere, somebody has to lead us collectively. Mm. Because otherwise, we're just going to go our, our divergent ways. And we're going to have to have some type of crisis, I am convinced of that, of a magnitude far, far greater than corona, um, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. you know, to bring that into, into fruition. I'm holding here in my hand a little document I picked up when I was, uh, this is 23 years ago, boy. Uh, I was a delegate at the United Nations Millennium Forum. Um, I had, a lack of a better way of saying it, I had embedded myself with the World Federalist uh, Association which is the largest pro-world government lobby group in the U.S. And that was my job for a couple of years to kind of monitor what was happening. 
And so, yeah, I ended up at the United Nations Millennium Forum as, as a delegate and picked up this little document. It's not a UN document, but it, there's not many of these in circulation, and it was being given to all of us who were in attendance. And so in this little document entitled, oh, perfect, uh, perfect title, Transformation of the World. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So you got Jeez. little images in here, like a, a world king metering out justice and power. But look, that, that looks like it could be out of like Sumeria or or, or Babylon, right? It could be one. It could be an effigy on a, on a temple in, or in, in in Egypt, right? I know that right. We're, not, we're an audio show, everyone's so listening, but it's it's this drawing of this central large figure with a world king, a world king, yeah, mm. yeah, mm. a world king who who's now on a pedestal, and the pedestal is called the Constitution, as it refers to the idea of a global constitution, and he is metering out the, the, the power between the people and all the different players on the planet. So the, the person who, who wrote this, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Yermente <laughs> Sultan Mirat, who was the head of the World Assembly of Turkic Peoples mm. and was right next in line to the president of uh, Kazakhstan, which, by the way, Kazakhstan and Astana, the capital city itself, you guys know about that. Crazy, crazy city that just screams global unity. Lots of uh, world interfaith conferences take place and other conferences on world unity and world oneness happen in Astana. So in this document, it goes on to say, small doubt that the world does need a civilized coordinator in international relations and in settling global problems. More than that, this coordinator must be a stabilizing factor. Actually, the last-ditch authority on the earth. He must win confidence of each man and each nation. People must be stark sure that this coordinator would solve any problem in a just and humane way, and one should be sure that in him he would find understanding and sympathy, that he would treat any nation as his own son, and that he is indeed the last resort, and the man should convince his terrestrial brothers therein by his practical deeds. And he goes on, can the world community do without a coordinator? Definitely it cannot. Wow. It sounds like, a, yeah, it's not like gospel I mean, of the Antichrist. It really just, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. you're right. Carl, I mean, it's messianic. It, it is. Yes. You can't do without it. You can't have this without this. This is the savior. I got to remind people that's from, that's from a UN. That from the, yeah, that was from the United Nations Millennium Forum, which happened, I'm trying to think it was May. Yeah, it was May of 2000. Uh, and then in the fall, there was another, a, a number of other major millennium events that were uh, all, they all interlocked with each other. But yeah, I was, a, I was a, a delegate to the UN Millennium Forum back then. Carl, we talk a lot about Genesis 6 on our show, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, and we, we talked to Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser extensively about kind of the three fundamental problems in the Old Testament. And most Christians just, they just know Genesis 3. They don't understand any of the other things going on that are sort of rebellions against God. What, how long do you think that these elites have been pushing for this one singularity hive mind antichrist thing is it is it did it start back then is it been is it old or is it like a more of an up-and-coming thing i i think like bookends the the front side of history demonstrates that more especially specifically with the tower of babel the tower of babel which we can't forget also was a city it was both a city and a tower that's how that's how it's laid out and then what we see is a a type of of parallel that's taking place today where we now have a Babel that's now being built. And in between, we've had a lot of mess, but we've had bookends. 
That's what, at least that's how I'm seeing it. Bookends. On the front side of history saying mankind is unified against God and we build our tower, we build our technology, we build our city, we build our infrastructure. Uh, and in the Targum, uh, the Genesis Targum, it has uh, the, the tower is capped with an idol wielding a sword and, and rallying the troops to battle. Mm-hmm. So even though that's, that's the, the legend of it in terms of the Jewish legend perspective, uh, it, it's interesting because it gives a sense or a flavoring to the rebellion behind this activity. I don't see, pardon me, I, I, yeah, I really don't see much difference in terms of what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. We're building a tower. We're, bu- we'll bu- we're building the infrastructure. Yeah, it's, it's and we're sh- yeah, and we're shaking our fists at God. We're saying, right. we're the ones who are in charge. We're building purpose. We're the ones who are building heaven on earth. The other, the other rebellion that I see in the early part of Genesis that, that needs, to be, uh, needs to come into play, but it's almost never seen, is Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Mm-hmm. God then gives him a curse, and the curse is to wander. And so Cain leaves his people. We don't know how old Cain is. We don't know uh, how many siblings there's been. We're not sure the time frame, but he leaves. And so he wanders. And that actually is his curse. He's supposed to stay wandering. And, and Cain is overcome by this. In fact, he cries out to God that this is too heavy to bear. And why is that so hard to bear? Because he's being stripped away from his security. He's being stripped away from from that, that which he knows. Now he is, he has to wander. And so he's afraid that he will die, he'll be killed. And there is this yearning to go against what God is saying. And God even goes so far as, hey, I'm going to be the one, and this is where the grace of God comes forward. I'm even going to be the one that's going to mark you, and, and, and I'll be your protectorate. Mm-hmm. So what does Cain, what does he do? He wanders, yes. And then he settles down and he builds a city. And the first city in the Bible is Enoch, named after his son in Genesis chapter 4. What does that do? It sets in place a principle that says, we will create our own artificial Eden. Mm. We, build, we build our own security. We replace God's security for one of our own making. God says, you are cursed with his sin, with his curse. I will have, nevertheless be your protectorate. I will nevertheless offer you my grace. And so as God offers up his grace and says, just do what I say, we rebel and we put our feet down and we build our cities. And then fast forward, we build our babbles. Mm-hmm. So there's, and then Jacques O'Loul, I've mentioned him once before. I don't understand everything Jacques O'Loul wrote. Some of it is just like over my head. I don't agree with some of the stuff he wrote, but he, he's probably one of the only guys who's really fleshed through what he calls the meaning of the city from a Christian point of view and explodes this with Genesis chapter four outward. And you realize that, oh, oh, we have been in rebellion collectively right from the beginning. Wow. And I, and I think that's something that I'm really thinking, thinking about in this episode is how transhumanism is going to bring everyone together in a, in, a, in a full defiance against God and something about language barriers and cultures. And the more freedom a human has, the harder it is for them to wage war against God. And you don't think about like Tower of Babel was sort of like people are being used, you know, they're being hijacked and they're being used. They don't really need you. They don't really care about you. They don't really want you. They just need numbers. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the number, the better they think they have an odds to to overthrow and take take God down. And so they're going to use sort of your moral system 
to hijack your mind. And then you're going to willingly walk into the slaughter. You're going to lay your own life down for the, the collective. And you think you're doing the right thing. You think you're helping. You think it, it's the moral good. It's the right. Yeah. Isn't that what we just have experienced over the past three years? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Totally. So there's a saying, it's a cliche, but it is absolutely not a cliche. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's not a cliche. In fact, if you take a look at Eve and her downfall, the downfall of man in the, in the garden, it was actually good intentions. Eve did no sin before she directly disobeyed. What the serpent was holding out, what the angel of light was holding out was a promise of goodness. You'll be the same as your creator. You'll be on par with the one who made you. Don't you want that? Would, how, why wouldn't you want that? That's not evil. Is mm. it? It's a good thing. Now you're going to have wisdom. That's a good thing. You're going to have this new knowledge. Your eyes are opened. It's all couched in a positive. I believe she went down the garden path, so to speak, paved with good intentions. Yeah, and at the same time, though, right, that he plays this, this other position that says that God doesn't, he's keeping you from this. He, right he doesn't right. want this for you like he, yeah he, he's keeping you in the dark like yes yes you, you, you always you, you deserve yeah. this it's yeah you're always jealous he's vindictive yeah yeah i <laughs> i i, I want to ask because I, I think this this question it, it ruminates in my mind and i want to ask your thoughts on it, it, it is it as we see things barrel towards this right we talk about all of the year markers and all the things we can see with our eyes i thought it's interesting too that you talked about the good intentions thing because if there's anything in, in the last three years it's like hey just do this because that's loving your neighbor or just do this just just lock yourself in your house just give up your job just take this medicine just that is the loving thing to do that is how you love your neighbor and in fact it's it's in fact how you enslave yourself which which is is ludicrous right but my my question is not that i just that is just a diatribe i just thinking about that but my question is this agenda do you believe and this is an opinion piece because we i don't know that we know this necessarily but do you think that the those that are pushing this agenda are cognizant that this is or or cooperating with the darkness in the sense of this is this is how we we bring about the end of days, right? This is how we bring about, in our mind, right? Bring about the the philosopher king, as the occult would call it, this 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 antichrist figure. Or do you think that they are, in the secular sense, they in their pride and in their in their self righteousness and, and self morality, just think that this are pushing this in that direction for for those reasons? I probably it's yes and I would imagine, but do you think at the highest levels there there is a a definite league or direction to cooperate in this sort of, you know, I, I don't know how else to explain it, like revelation in time sort of plan, right? To, to bring the nations together to, it's Nimrod, to bring the nations together to war, to war with the, with the God of the Bible, to war, to be an enmity with God. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that they, this is just humanity stumbling into what's going to happen anyway? Or is this, is there a concerted effort that that is the end goal and that they are working, you know, to essentially, you know, militarize and, and consolidate humanity against God? That's a really interesting question. I think for the most part, it's accidental. Mm -hmm. Accidental in the sense that 
it's the the result of their worldview. And, and it's not that they have consulted entities asking. I think for the most part, uh, it's done with good intentions. I've rubbed the shoulders with enough of these people to go that, you know, to, to know that for the most part, they believe that what they're doing is righteous, that what they're doing is worthy, that what they're doing brings purpose. And in terms of those high up, yeah, I've rubbed shoulders with a little bit as well, including former and, and, and individuals who are quite high in the United Nations. In fact, uh, the very first international event I went to was on rebuilding Canada's education system along the lines of the World Core Curriculum put forward by Robert Mueller. And Robert Mueller put uh, 11 of the United Nations specialized agencies into play. And he was the undersecretary general. And, and he was at this event. And, and we, we talked. And I mean, I spent three days at this event with Robert Mueller. Uh, and he was like a grandpa figure to everybody who was there. He, it, was, it was all, you know, rosy cheeks and big smiles. And, and we're doing this to save the planet. But make no mistake, when it came to Robert Mueller, his perspective was absolutely spiritual. Mm. And, and he saw it from that perspective of having a spiritual meaning. It wasn't just a secular thing. Mm. It was definitely a very spiritual thing. Uh, uh, so much so that as he was explaining, and now I'll have to back up just a little bit. So this conference was called the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, held 1,000 days before the year 2000. The organizers who put it together were theosophists, came at it from a theosophical point of view. Robert Mueller himself came at it from a theosophical uh, point of view. And so there was a lot of talk about how what we're doing is, is awakening mother, making, awakening Gaia, serving the mother, serving Mother Earth, that type of thing. And he, he told all the school children, because these were children who were involved at this conference. It wasn't just educators, but I think there's like eight or 10 different schools that were participating, uh, that those who were in attendance, you were all really children of the cosmos. You're all divine. Mm. Uh, you're not children of Canada. You are divine. And, and over and over again, we were told that what we were doing is we were working uh, to save, his words, to save Mother Earth. That's what being a good global citizen is all about. You're engaged in this salvation plan. Mm. And he saw it in, in, from that spiritual point of view, and it wasn't hidden. At the end of the event, we had Ganesha, the Hindu deity who removes the obstacles with his many arms. Uh, we had a, a theatrical performance of Ganesha coming before these school children, telling all the children, the educators, the curriculum writers that were there, that look, just call upon Ganesha. And, and Ganesha will remove any obstacle from your mind because Ganesha is none other, none other than you. And, and it was just described to us as we were birthing the planet of God. I mean, we we're living out Robert Mueller's dream from his book, New Genesis, and where he describes this as we are becoming the planet of God. And in all of this, I ended up sitting beside a group of university students who had become future educators. And one of the, one of the university students saw through it for what it was. He didn't see it through it critically. He saw it through it to accept it. He, he said, what we do, need to do, and this, these were his words, make this a virus no inoculation, infect everyone. You see, that's the real virus. It's the heart-mind virus of Genesis chapter 3. Mm. Dude, that's a good point. It makes me think, like, do you think that there's no such thing as sort of an, an empty vessel? Like, we, we all are, we all are s serving some spiritual we're on a spiritual path, whether we're aware of it or not. Because some people just think that, oh, they're just, they're just, I don't, I don't get into politics. I don't talk about religion. 
And that's kind of their knee-jerk reaction. It's like, it seems though God created human, we're all worshiping something and we have to. Whether we're aware of it or not, I think some people just plead the fifth, ah, oh, I'm just not involved. And it's like, well, you're, you could be as atheist as you want, but you still, you, 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 you tote the narrative and you say the lines. Yeah, and even being an atheist takes you into that oneness perspective because there's nothing higher than humanity in terms of, I mean, that's it. The divine is nature or man, but it doesn't matter because God doesn't exist. It's just nature. It becomes, it takes its own oneness perspective, but you're right. There is this spiritual impulse. And, and as we strip away the Judeo-Christian worldview, which has its spirituality grounded in what is true, not necessarily in what we feel, but in who is true. That's where true spirituality has to emerge from. Who is true? Uh, when we have rejected that, there will be a replacement. There has to be a replacement. In fact, that replacement's always been there. It's been there since Genesis chapter 3. I am convinced of it. And so, is there this longing or this sense to return back to those ancient pagan days? Absolutely. That's the heartbeat of today's neo-pagan world. Uh, I haven't been to many. I've been to one, two, three, maybe three or four uh, focused pagan events. I'm not, I'm not even counting Burning Man and that. I'm not counting transformational festivals. You can argue all of that. I, I would say that would be like middle case P paganism, whereas, <laughs> I mean, upper, upper case paganism, self-proclaimed, self-identified paganism. And so the, the last one I went to in person, right before the borders all shut at the, at the very beginning of 2020, was uh, Paganicon, the largest gathering, indoor gathering of witches, Wiccans. Wow. And neo-pagans in the world and it took place in the, the lower, lower side of uh, the San Francisco Bay. Wow. Yeah, yeah, in San Jose. And uh, what's really interesting, and I, I mean, okay, as far as I know, I'm the only Christian at this event. I know when I went to, Pag <laughs> <laughs> when I went to Paganicon in, in Minneapolis, which is the largest indoor conference of pagans in the U.S. Midwest, the last time I went was 2019 to that one, and uh, I found out later that there were two or three other Christians uh, who were doing research in paganism and Wicca, and they were there to learn. Because, I mean, honestly, if you're going to engage in these worldviews seriously as a serious re researcher, you're not just writing, or pardon me, you're not just reading articles about it. You're going to talk to them. More importantly, you're going to listen to them. You have to hear what they say. And if you can engage in conversations with them at the same time, if those kinds of things happen, awesome. But so I go, okay, that's what I do. When I have those opportunities, I'll, I'll go. So to the point of, of the ancient worldview with its ancient concepts, I'm going to read you from um, a little workshop that I attended called Getting Straight with Spirit. Oh, and right above that is Ancient Greek Heroes and the initi Initiatory Quest. <laughs> I went to that one as well. Yeah, getting straight with spirit. Carl, I love it, dude. A, a non-binary. Okay. You're, you're, you're like well, you're, you're Alex. You're Alex Jonesing all the all these these events, man. You're, it's like it's like you go into the uh, Bohemian Grove, but you're just you're showing up. And you're going, hey, by the way, I'm, you know, it's like Alex Jones, Jason Bourne. I you're like, like I'm, I'm just I like I'm, get, I'm getting in here and I'm, <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm I'm learning. But no, go, go, go ahead. But I, I just find that fascinating because yeah, I, yeah. I, I I think to understand, like you say in your research, and you have to go and see what they're saying right like right right yeah. so i i guess i've been blessed because 
I'm stupid. Uh, I'm a farmer. You know, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't want. To, I don't degrade <laughs> farmers at all. To be a farmer, it means you have to have. You have to really know your stuff. You have to know uh, soil conditions. You have to be a, an ace mechanic. There's so everybody dishes farming as being like simple people. No, no, no. It is seriously mm-hmm. s- serious amount of knowledge. Trust me, I've grown up on a grain farm. Everybody around me are, are farmers. It's, so, you know, I, I came into this going, all right, what do I do? How do I get engaged in research? Because again, I wasn't trained in any of this. I don't have that academic background. My thought was, you just go to the source, right? What else do you do? So that's how I entered this this type of, of work, just going, all right, I'm going to get their reports, I'll get their books, I'll get their documents. Uh, and then as opportunity opened up, I would go to, I will go to their events. And I've probably been to, I, I don't know, um, if I include all the virtual stuff, I, I couldn't even guess, 50 events, wow. maybe? I don't wow. know, piles and piles. Yeah. Uh, and mm. I've got a couple lined up I, I want to be going to this year, including the Parliament of World Religions back in Chicago. Hey, by the way, guys, if you're doing nothing this August, take <laughs> the time to come to the Parliament of World Religions. It's a circus it's a religious zoo Mm. but what's really cool about it is is two fronts one you'll be able to rub shoulders with people from all kinds of faiths every walk of life imaginable you'll be able to gather documentation go to the workshops understand the interfaith movement which is really nothing more than the religious component of globalization and then the other thing that's really cool is people want to talk about their faith and you have the opportunity to share yours Carl it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, just hearing about this. Reminds me a little bit of you know a good friend of our show and 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 uh, the late Michael Dr. Michael Heiser who would who would talk about going to UFO conferences and because people were hungry there and that he would end up talking about things within that paradigm and he really really end up just talking to preaching the gospel right at, at the end right. of the day and it sounds like it sounds like that like I. I find it fascinating. I also, I've got. I want you to continue, but I got some questions at the end about just like what kind of weird spiritual stuff you might encounter because those have to be pretty gnarly places sometimes, like to put your insert yourself into. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, I'll, I'll read you this: "Getting Straight with Spirit," because it gets to that point of of these other deities. And by the way, the whole Wiccan community is is uh, there, there's such diversity such diversity within paganism, and there has to be. Just like within Christianity, you have an incredible amount of diversity because not everybody agrees with everybody else. Right. Flat out, <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. So here we go. This is from, their, uh, from, from this workshop. A non-binary look at source itself, animism and fey, exploring spirit in a state of wholeness before conceptualization of binary perspective. Being non-binary, I've explored gender with gods, spirits, fays, shining ones, asking why they need gender. Fairy creation, and fairy, by the way, is a subset within the Wiccan community. Fairy creation started through an orgasmic exaltation, exaltation of God herself. We will explore these and more, delving into the alchemical union of polarities into a state of wholeness, oneness, humanity, finding our power as we reweave ourselves back into the reflection of God herself as a divine adronogen. Wow. What was interesting with this fellow's non-binary conversation was asking the question, why, why do gods and goddesses and why do these spirits need gender? Asking this question, why do they need gender? And so he broke it down this way. He said, look, as our modern culture accepts gender fluidity within us humans, 
this non-binary direction that we're going, where we can change back and forth and change into all kinds of other things. And this, by the way, is part of our evolutionary process. The next evolutionary stage, and this is how he framed it, the next evolutionary stage is when we begin to blur those boundaries between the physical, the human, and the spiritual with the gods and the goddesses. Mm. And so from Mm. his perspective, the transgender issue was really a spiritual issue. It was a front runner, a forerunner to the next transitioning, to the next non-binary. And the next non-binary, from his perspective, would be this phasing between humanity and the spiritual. I thought that was a really fascinating, fascinating perspective. When it comes to Genesis chapter 6, it's interesting how even the pagan community is is presently wrestling with Genesis chapter 6. And and I've been to workshops at at these pagan events where Genesis chapter 6 is being discussed. Interesting. So there there is some type of commonality in terms of, you know, asking the question, what happened? And, mm. and, and how does this play out in terms of today's new spirituality? So, I mean, do you think like the transhumanism kind of where we're going is all of this gender stuff coming out of like they're trying to push people to sort of this androgynous upgrade that they, they all want us to take? Well, if everything is one, if, if, we, if oneness is truly the worldview, the most dominant worldview, and I believe it actually is the dominant worldview, I believe it's a dominant shaping force right now, uh, you know, stripping all of the, of the trappings of it away, this idea that man, God, and nature are all essentially the same, if that is true, and I put quotation marks around that, then we can transition, we can move from gender to gender, from sexuality to sexuality. We should be able to do this fluidly we should be able to move from human to machine from human Mm. to spirit from from maybe human to machine and then into spirit it should all end up becoming fluid and and guess what that's that's how it all of a sudden is being Mm. portrayed to us whether it's true or not and i don't think it is true but the point being they believe it is and they push that narrative it's the opposite of what the bible is saying so when we examine what happens, let's say, within the transhumanist worldview, or we have, you know, examine paganism, or any of these other movements and isms, we don't look to see what they're saying as being definitive, that this is the end goal that they want to achieve, and that, and that they will necessarily achieve that goal. They may achieve parts and, you know, and pieces of that goal, but we know how the end of, you know, we, don't, we, we know the end of the book. We know how it's written. We know mm-hmm. how that plays out. How far will they succeed and what kind of devastation unfolds as they push the agenda? I'm more concerned about that and how it will shape and change and challenge my neighbors, my friends, my family, and how we, how we as Christians now are, need to respond, not, not react, but respond with truth. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the great deception, right? That we talk, that right. It's, it's in there. I, I find it fascinating, Carl, as you unwrap this and even talked about the that presentation where they sort of elicit this Hindu God and there's Gaia and there's, it's always telling that they're all inclusive of all interfaiths, except, (laughs) except being the Christian worldview, except the God of the Bible, except Jesus Christ as King, right? It's always everything else is okay. Like you're that, come on, bring that in here. Bring your Buddhism and your Zen. Bring your paganism. Bring your fairies and furries and all this stuff, right? It, it, but yeah, 
Jesus is always Jesus is always the target. And it's not accidental. I, I think it's it's fascinating if you look at it with eyes wide open because it's it's never like uh, hey we're going to go after Krishna or Buddha or you know or even Allah or any of this stuff, right? It, it's it's always G- Jesus Christ is the enemy, and and, and it's such a tell. But it, it's fascinating because the rest of the world walks around blind it feels like to that you know i was interested when i was asking that question earlier it is the great deception right it's the idea that i i feel like it's not it's not actively you go to these pagan things very few of these uh wiccans and witches are probably really actively worshiping satan right oh they don't right it's 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 some other it's wrapped in something else but it it, ultimately it's what it is right but it's it's like these all these players are being are being towed along by the nose like a bull like to, to this final destination right right under this grand deception and to the point of satanism and witches uh i'm glad you said that it, it's it's so in 2019 one of the more unique things that happened at paganicon that year was they had invited a, a couple luciferians and witches to give presentations to the witch so to, to wild, the witches bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is yeah. just how you know this is how that world works and i found it fascinating listening to the witches and the satanists in conversation because historically they don't get along uh they haven't really got along for 20 or 30 years and this is one of the first events of significance where you had both sharing the same room sharing the same platform and now discussing together how they in a sense have historically dissed each other and 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 have historically been at odds with each other and i attended one workshop where it it was led by a satanist and and she actually apologized to everybody for not bringing her bibles she's she's gonna have everybody shred bibles and stomp on bibles because her her workshop was all Mm -hmm. about healing from abusive religious experiences And, and how blasphemy could be used as a healing tool. Wow. In fact, that, that was the name of, of, of her workshop. Wow. And what I found fascinating, and, and as a Christian, we, 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 you know, we kind of cringe when we hear, oh, we're going to shred Bibles. And, and I was glad that she didn't bring her Bibles, that she didn't have them arrive on time. But what I found more disturbing was the conversation I was hearing between her as a, as a Satanist and a couple of the witches before the, before the workshop began. And they were discussing with each other their experiences with Christians. And let mm. me tell you, it angered me. Now, I know that this isn't indicative of all Christians. Absolutely not. This is, you know, they're pulling from, from bad experiences. But the fact is, they're bad experiences. And, and to our shame sometimes. So, they were talking about how Christians, when they found out they were a witch or she was a Satanist, would hurl insults, uh, would snub them, would, would go out of their way to, to be miserable. Uh, how one guy had gone across the parking lot picked up a, a bag of trash out of a garbage can, walked over the Satanist and, and just dumped the trash all over her. Stuff like this. And I'm like, hold mm. on, hold on. Like, I mean, I, that gets my ire up a bit. Uh, I'm sorry. You're supposed to be an ambassador for Christ. Mm-hmm. An ambassador means you come in having the legal official position of being the representative of the King of Kings to mm-hmm. these people. Yeah. That's your your position. You are literally the legal representative of Jesus. That's mm. come on, image bearers, man. This this bingo, this, yeah. bingo. And and yeah. now what are now what are you doing? You're not an ambassador. No, dumping trash on on a Satanist is, isn't spiritual warfare, guys. Just, no, 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 it's you know, not. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I, I'll be honest. I I I was upset. I was angry, and I just sat there, just kind of. I still kind of grit my teeth over it because how ignorant, how utterly 
ignorant. So let's up our game and be real ambassadors. What does that, you know, what does that look like? Grace and truth together. It's hard. It's hard for a lot of people because they do get into that fundamentalism perspective. And I grew up in a lot of those circles and there's a lot of fundamental ideas where, you know, I mean, just some of the crazy experiences I had with friends coming home from Christian colleges and some of the weird stuff that happens. Christianity can get very much like legalistic and can get very much like you see it in a lot of channels that the people come at us where, you know, they're afraid of Christmas and they're afraid of all these holidays because they think that, you know, everything's been hijacked and they want to live under a rock. And then eventually, eventually Christ is what they have to give up because it's this system that they can't get in. And it just sounds so similar to a lot of these other pagan truths where they, they're so afraid, they're, they're driven by fear. They're, and it's, it's funny because they all think that at the end, like there's going to be some alpha that's going to save them. Some, you know, like they don't want God and they shun all that, but they're all, they don't realize that the gods eventually warred against each other. And it was just nothing but, you know, everyone killing each other. There was no, there was no peace. There was no utopia. It never arrives, but it's always promised. And we see this over and over again, the same theme. And I just, it's sad that a lot of the fundamentalism gives Christianity a bad name because people do terrible things and they think they're doing the right thing. Exactly. So we have to always check ourselves, right? I mean, I have to. One of the things uh, I think is a blessing in a weird way of going to these kinds of events is you end up seeing these people as people. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You see them as people. You see them as as souls. Uh, Doesn't mean that you agree with them. Not at all. Uh, But it does mean that you're going to treat them with some measure of respect. Uh, And I mean... I'm not going for the sake of of evangelism. That can happen. I mean, that's beautiful when it does occur. I'm going as a researcher. But let me tell you, I had had an opportunity at that same event. I had some, every event has interesting interactions. But at that particular event, um, I came out of a workshop and I was looking in a different room. They had a big labyrinth set up and I was looking at this labyrinth and people were in the labyrinth and this guy walks up to me and, and he hits on me. And so, okay, all right, whatever. So you diffuse the, the advancement. And, um, and so I said, hey, let's, let's go for coffee. And so the two of us went and we had uh, a coffee in the cafeteria at the, at the center where the, this event was happening. And uh, we sat and talked for a couple of hours. And he asked right away, of course, what branch of paganism I was from. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm a Christian. He's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, and I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm here to learn. I'm just here to learn. That's that's the whole point. I have I know people who are pagan. I run into pagan pagan people. I know paganism is a hugely influential worldview. So I want to learn. Full stop. That's it. Mm-hmm. But but that opened up a conversation around the question of is oneism or twoism reality? Because he is an avowed oneist. Mm-hmm. Everything about paganism is oneism. You hear that phrase being tossed around in practically every workshop or lecture. There's this sense of we're working towards oneism or it's all oneness. And so now we had the opportunity to spend two hours and having this great conversation about, well, is reality one or two? Comparing and contrasting the pagan view against the biblical view. Didn't hide it. And and coming around to Jesus Christ, to the fact he's the author, to the fact he's the author of life, which means that he, as the author of life, can take his own life and bring it back again. And and this also is one of the reasons why we have death as the consequence of our sin in the Garden of Eden, because when we turn our back on the author of life, the logical outcome is 
death occurs. The wages mm. of sin. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So we end up having this awesome like two-hour conversation around coffee. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone, and, and it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have I guess hit on me, just bizarre, but crazy, you know, that, that, that's just how it goes. So, I mean, you, you just roll with the punches, so to speak. Yeah. And then look for those, those chances to have conversations, but I'm going primarily as, as you know, to do that research. That's good. I mean, I like, I like that you get involved and you, you go out there and you get, get a lot of Christians are so afraid. And I think there's just this, there, the fear is the driving force. They're so afraid that either they're going to lose or they're going to be, you know, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say, because sometimes some of this stuff will follow you home, Carl. So you have to be careful because we've heard weird stories of people having, they're out in the woods, they see something that's just beyond weird. I mean, we talk a lot about the weird stuff on our show. So <laughs> it, you, you can't just, you know, you have to be armored up and you have to know exactly what you're doing. You can't just willy nilly go through the, through life and, and expect that not to be engaged in some sort of spiritual warfare. And I think that, Sounds like well, you obviously you're Yeah, well well look, I mean when you walk into McDonald's or into Walmart, do you feel the darkness? Yeah. You know, sometimes, do. yeah. Well especially or or white Taco castle. Bell especially, white yeah. castle. <laughs> Walmart is like sometimes I just can't wait to get out of there. It feels like well, I'm, oh, I, like I just portal. can't wait to get I can't wait to get out of shopping anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, sure, but I mean <laughs> right. but but, but you know, I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean the checkout counter, the girl behind there could be a Wiccan. You have no idea. Yeah. You're rubbing shoulders with this with these kinds of people all the time and you don't even sure. realize it. So the, the the question then becomes are we are we are we gonna run away from it? Are we hiding our heads in the sand? Uh how how are we going to acknowledge what's happening? Are we gonna take it seriously? The gospel seriously? Are we mm. gonna take the biblical position seriously? And mm -hmm. I've you know, mm -hmm. I mean uh, one of the reasons why I've I've been going to Burning Man when I have, uh, and, and my friend Bob Worley, who was my partner in Burning Man for the for those for the first for the first couple of years, especially, uh, we set up a, a tent at Burning Man with a sign. And the sign says "Camp of the Unknown God," based out of Acts seventeen. And then we have the opportunity to have great conversations, great conversations as people people walk by and sometimes have literally shouted out, yeah. "Who is this unknown God?" So, yeah. When you go to these right. kinds of events, you're entering their church. And so mm. you want to be respectful to them as individuals. And at the same time, you look for those opportunities that opens up with them asking questions. You know? Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's, yeah I, I, it's evangelism, bro. That's, that's, I mean, really. Well, it's funny because we just got a message right before this. A lady was talking about how she, her friend's a hairdresser and she was cutting this lady's hair and she started to manifest right there and her eyes turned black and. It was like she's cutting her hair, and all of a sudden, and you're just a hairdresser. You don't think you're uh, what? What are you gonna deal? What you're gonna deal with that day is gonna be something that's like straight out of like an Exorcist movie. That's what happened, and we. And it's funny, I just read that message right before this interview, so it it it, it applies. And the weird stuff's out there. And I, I like your boldness. I like that you walk you walk in to learn. And we need more people on the because it, sometimes it's easy just to sit on the outside and and not right. get involved, not get in the game. And we talk to a lot of people that come on our show who have supernatural experiences or have seen something, and they can't talk to anybody. It's like Christians are sometimes the most yep. closed-minded yep. to the spiritual realm, and that's what our show, that's what our show's kind of becomes quasi-popular because we're just willing to have these conversations. 
and uh, it's 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 mind blowing. Luke and I have sometimes yeah. like <laughs> Carl. I, I wanted to ask one 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 last question, and and yeah. it was um you know when you lay out your book Game of Gods and you're looking at really this direction that things are going right. You have this this removal of Judeo Christianity as our foundation in the Western world. Um, this is almost a devolution, right? You have this new religion that that's arising, and, and you're doing the research, and you're going and you're going and figuring out what these folks are doing, what's driving them. In, in the light of all that, and sort of as dark as that all is, how do you find hope in that? I mean, it, w- what is your you know? Because it, it feels like you know it's a barreling to Armageddon, right? It, it feels like these these are the eventually this is the this is how we get there to this oneness idea and then we are one world then we have one king and we just talked about you you opened up the the pamphlets from the un that is the goal with that in mind that this, this train has left the station it has left the station yeah so how do, how do you you know with that in mind it's kind of dark right it's a little bit depressing that's where things are heading now how do you how do you balance the the, the hope then on, on on the other oh side oh my goodness to, to me it's it's so glaring the hope is so obvious because as you see on the one hand this move towards man saying, I will save myself and I am my own redeemer, that in its own right demonstrates the reality of Jesus Christ, that he is our hope, that he is who is true, mm. not mm-hmm. man's schemes and man's devising. I, I see this as a fantastic affirmation of, of the biblical position because it's just demonstrating it in spades you know, to, to the, the measure that man will mm-hmm. go to say that we will save ourselves. And, and then I look at this and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I, I specifically look at the, the thief on the cross and I'm going, well, you know, you look at him, there's not a lot of hope, is there? Yeah. No, no, he's, he's breathing his last. No. Mm-mm. His body is broken and he's breathing his last. He's literally being mm. executed. We forget that that's what's happening. He is being executed and mm. there is nothing he can do except mm. trust the one who's also being executed beside him, Jesus Christ. Now, there was great mm. hope in that. Mm. I'm not saying we're in the same position. We're like the thief on the cross being executed, but we're in a position where it looks dark. It looks hopeless, but the hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. Now, the other way of looking at what's how all this is unfolding is we look at this as opportunity. I mean, the world looks at the crisis as an opportunity. We also then, I think, should look at crisis as an opportunity. I had a great conversation mm-hmm. this afternoon with a lady who came to my office. She wanted to talk about what happened over the last three years. She's not a believer, but it opened up her eyes big time to ask big, big questions mm-hmm. that allow us to begin to move down that road of where your hope is found and where tr- trust and truth is found. Yeah. And, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this yeah, conversation is going to keep going yeah. because she's hungry. So all of a sudden, we have to look at this as opportunity. Uh, and I think that's important, an opportunity not to react, but to respond. One of the assignments I have my class do is in the beginning of the week, before we really get into any of the lectures, uh, I hand out a sheet to them all, and there's 10 videos they can watch from YouTube. And all the videos are shocking. They're short. Uh, they are so in your face. They're so anti-Christian. And I, my, my, my assignment is, all right. Before we get any further in this class, I want you to write two paragraphs, maybe three paragraphs, your gut reaction. Spill it the way you would spill it on social media when you when you just sit down at your keyboard and you're a keyboard warrior. Just spill it. Don't think. Just do what you normally do. React. Because mm. that's how we've all been queued up to handle situations. We react. Mm. Then after the end of 20 hours of, of lectures, at the end of the week, rewatch the same video and now respond respond with 
two to three pages where you break down the worldview, you have an understanding of the worldview, you can find answers to that worldview, counters to that worldview that are both taken from a logical and a scriptural, and they're not mutually exclusive, they work together, a logical and scriptural response back so that you can begin to see this for what it is, mm. an opportunity to respond and not react. Mm. So that's, that's what we need to do. And then to the issue of fear, mm. here's a question. Will every knee bow? Every knee will bow. We bow in love. Absolutely. We bow in love. Mm. Those around us who refuse to bow in love will bow in judgment. And every principality and power mm. Mm. that is in the background or even now in the foreground will also bow as well. Mm-hmm. So then why are we afraid? That's right. Shouldn't be. Bingo. Well, the, king, the king's army is behind us. Man. Exactly. You, you, yeah. So I, I see all of this as, as exciting. I mean, yeah. gentlemen, uh, we're born into this century. and or, Well, actually, you, all three of us, we were born in the other century. But you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is our era. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. we are called now yeah. to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this time period. Love that. If nothing else, I, we always say on our show, the more... When you understand what you're up against, you understand how much you need a savior. And sometimes Christians are just, we like to just kind of go through our cozy, easy reality, you know, our Walmart faith of just showing up and then leaving. But as you can see, the, the world's getting darker and these things are starting to come out. So it's, it's time to be at least move from the neutral space to the offense. And, right. and we do have a lot of power. So Carl's saying, yeah, yep. like, time for being reactionary, I think, is over. Yeah. Man, I love it, Carl. Carl. Uh, Yeah, thanks so much for joining us here and dropping knowledge. And thanks for your research, man. We'd love to to check in after your after your next uh, (laughs) your next research project and see what kind of (laughs) wild stuff you uh, you uncover. But um, yeah, we're great. We're grateful. I'm hoping I'm hoping to attend some stuff uh, this year. There's a a virtual event taking place with in the international political community that I want to plug into in the next couple of weeks. And then, Lord willing, I'm going to be looking at traveling to a conference on psychedelics and try to get a handle on where the psychedelic community is going. And then if things unfold, back to the Parliament of World Religions and hopefully Burning Man. We'll see how all of this plays out as as the weeks and months move forward. But yeah, you know, pray for us as we continue Mm -hmm. to to engage in this kind of a work. But Like Donnie, Bra- Donnie Brasco, that's what I was trying to think of. You're like Donnie Brasco, man. You're infiltrating the mob. You're in there. You're, you're just, you're just, get, you're just figuring, figuring out what they're doing. You know? yeah. Hey, hey, we've all infiltrated the mob. If you're a Christian, right. you're already infiltrated it. You know, you already <laughs> have. Sorry, yeah. you're there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for allowing yeah, yeah. me to be a part of, part of your, your, uh, your podcast. This has been yeah. good. Thanks, Great. Carl. Appreciate uh, it, Carl. The book is Game of Gods. Tell us where they can... Uh, our listeners where they can find you and follow you or right. get involved with what you're doing. So you can go to gameofgods.ca if you want to read excerpts of the book. Uh, if you want to poke into the bibliography, it's there as well. Uh, you can find Game of Gods on Amazon. It's it's a fairly big book. It's 570 pages long. That includes the index, fully footnoted. For anybody who is a research nerd, uh, you're going to find it uh, to be an absolutely excellent resource. I have 1,800 footnotes, and I, I am a bit of a geek when it comes to the documenting of, of what I'm talking about, because I think it's really important that mm. we're not in, not you know not just going off of uh, circular reasoning, uh, us, all of us within the Christian community sending newsletters mm-hmm. to each other, and then we could just quote each other. I'd rather just quote what they're saying. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So I know what, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how it's structured. So go and check out gameofgods.ca. And then I was the editor of a magazine called Forcing Change that examined the intellectual, philosophical, religious, and political forces of change. And I was an editor for that publication for nine years. You can go to forcingchange.org. It's a free resource. Just sign up with your email and you have access to all nine years of the back issues of Forcing Change magazine. It was a monthly intelligence style publication. There's a number of articles and other special reports there too. It's free. Just like data mine it. Go in and, and strip awesome. it out, strip it out. So if you want to read for the next nine years, go there and read it all. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll actually link to it on our website yeah, we will. with all the other books. So um, you can find it there if you if you forget, just go to our website and you can find it there. And Carl, thank you so much. Well, thanks and I so appreciate much. your uh your bravery going out and just seeing what seeing what's happening and, and reporting back to us like a true journalist for the kingdom. Yeah. Appreciate the time we've had it together, gentlemen. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. Thanks appreciate for making it happen. Last yeah. no, last minute too. Appreciate that. I know, yeah. Thanks for being flexible too. That's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Carl. When it comes out. Good, good to see you and then see your name for like the last 30 minutes. But yeah. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> see ya. There we there go. You are. There he is. Thanks, Carl. Yeah. You can thank your wife for handing you the book. That was, that was key. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Have a good Thanks, night. brother. Good to see you, man. Bye. See, see you. you.